Genesis 28. We're going to look this morning at verses 10 to 22, the end of the chapter. Genesis 28, 10 to 22. I'm sure we've all heard the song. We've probably all sung the song. We are climbing Jacob's ladder. You know that song? Soldiers of the Cross. What does that mean? Well, obviously it's a song taken from this text. The account of Jacob's vision of a ladder uh, reaching into heaven. So does the song make uh, the point that's supposed to be made? Well, let's read the text. Try to figure out what it really means. Verse 10, Genesis 28. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham, and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west, and to the east, and to the north, and to the south. All people on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you, and I will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place. And I was not aware of it. And he was afraid. And said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the place Bethel, though the city used to be called Lutz. When Jacob, then Jacob made a vow, saying, if God will be with me, and will watch over me on this journey I am taking, and will give me the food to eat and clothes to wear so that I may return safely to my father's house. Then the Lord will be my God, and this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house, and of all that you gave me I will give you a tenth. There are clearly two parts to this text. There's the vision that, Isaiah, that I, uh, Jacob saw, and then there's Jacob's response to it when he wakes up in the morning. Let's look at each of those uh, two parts and uh, derive from each one of them uh, one truth for us to uh, think about. The first is this, that God has come near to us in Jesus. God has come near to us in Jesus. You know, we human, human beings have a universal longing to know God. But whatever means we find most promising, we seek some contact with the divine. It's true of every culture. It's true of every people everywhere in all time. We want to understand the meaning of things. We want to experience fellowship with the supernatural in some sense. Our hearts universally are religious by nature, even if our claim is that we're atheists. That too is a religious position. But nothing seems to work very well for us. Of course, the biggest problem is that we can't see God and that we can't comprehend God. By definition, we're talking about somebody who's bigger than us and immeasurable and incomprehensible, unfathomable. Indeed, the more we understand about ourselves, the more we realize that we are helpless to try to even approach a God who really is a God. But we're not holy. 
we're messed up. Our lusts are far from being ready to really encounter the living God. Well, that was Jacob's experience as well. Life had pretty much blown up in Jacob's face. Long ago, he had schemed to uh, talk his brother out of his birthright and uh, had, had, had done that successfully, getting him to sell it for a bowl of uh, stew. But recently, he's gone much further. In a scheme, a scheme cooked up by his mother, he deceived his own father, and he stole that which his father intended to give to his brother, the family a blessing. Isaac, his father, who loved the other brother, Esau, better, uh, had come to understand his error, but he was undoubtedly not happy with Jacob. Esau, of course, was angry. Esau said, as soon as my father dies, I'll kill that little so-and-so, and vowed to kill his brother. Rebecca, whose idea the whole scheme was, is now saying, you better run because uh, Esau is going to kill you for what you did to him. Wait a minute, who did what? <laughs> and so Jacob is uh, left alone. And uh, he's on the run. He heads off for his uncle Laban's home in Haran, some 450 miles away, a place he's never been. He is undoubtedly, as he travels, disillusioned, guilt-ridden, and afraid. As he travels apparently alone, he undoubtedly is forced to face himself and his actions. It could not possibly have been a very happy day on the road for Jacob. As night fell, Jacob found himself in an open place not far from the little town called Lutz. Undoubtedly tired and discouraged, and afraid, and looking over his shoulder to see if maybe Esau was following him to kill him, he stops for the night to just sleep under the stars. And as he laid his head on a stone for a pillow, his sleeping arrangements probably reflected his mood. Hard, cold, and pretty bleak. Ah, but God comes near to sinners. And that's what happened to Jacob in this place. As he tried to sleep with a rock for a pillow, Jacob had a dream, a vivid dream, which when he awoke, he recognized to be more than just a dream, to be an encounter with the living God. This revelation from the Lord had two parts. He saw a vision and he heard God speak. Let's look at each part. You could describe the vision yourself. He saw a stairway, that's probably a better word than ladder, a stairway extending from the earth where he, where he lay up into heaven. And at the top of the stairway was the Lord. And moving up and down the stairway were the angels of God ascending and descending on the stairs. Now what are we to make of this? What's the point of this vision? Our search for understanding is initially hampered a bit because this word for stairway is, uh, is a word that is used only here in the whole Bible. The Hebrew word that's behind our English word. If you want to know the fancy name for that, that's a hapax legomena. You'll never need to know that again. But that's a word that's used only one time in the Bible, and this is one of them. And so we can't just say, well, how is this used otherwise? What exactly did he see? We can't see that. But we, we can't make that comparison. But there are some similar extra-biblical accounts. 
which suggests that God may have used some familiar imagery to communicate something to Jacob. For example, there's a similar ancient Akkadian word which describes the stairway to heaven extending between heaven and the nether world with messengers ascending and descending on it. Sounds like a similar picture. Or there's the, in the pyramid text of Egypt, there's a reference to a celestial ladder by which deceased kings hope to climb up and enter heaven. And then there's the idea of the ancient ziggurat with its long a staircase. You've seen pictures of this, like a, a staircase-shaped pyramid. And on the top, a temple god. In fact, that probably was the design of the, of the uh, Tower of Babel back in uh, Genesis 11. And when uh, God uh, was not pleased with them for building such a tower, their hope to climb into heaven and to unite and to make everything right, and God destroyed that. And the very next thing that happened in chapter 12 was God made his covenant with Abraham. This is a similar situation. Because here, in every one of these accounts, is pictured some kind of connection between heaven and earth. Heaven touching earth. Some point of access to God seems to be the picture in all of these related uh, uh, images. And the angels of God descending and ascending into heaven along this stairway only seem to suggest that God is active, that God's messengers are going and coming, and he is doing things, he is involved in the, in, in the world. And that's what God means for, Abra for, for uh, Jacob to understand here, that God has come near to him in the midst of his great distress. But God doesn't just leave Jacob to figure that out, or us to figure that out, because not only did Jacob see this vision, the Lord spoke to him in the vision, and God explained to him what it was he had to say. From the top of the stairway, God spoke words to Jacob. Alan Ross points out, he's a Hebrew scholar, he points out that the whole grammar of this section is, is, is focused, it's, it's, it's uh, 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 set up in such a way, the sentences are parallel, so that it focuses down on the, on the key issue, and the key issue is the Lord spoke. That's the center thought of the whole uh, section. And what did God speak? Well, he confirms and he unpacks the meaning of what Jacob saw. Let me read it again, verses 13 to 15. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am Yahweh, the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying, your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you, and I will watch over you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land, and I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Here God is making sure that Jacob understands that God himself has come near him and has spoken promises to him. Now notice what God actually promises him. It's the exact same thing that God promised his grandfather Abraham. This is the promise of the covenant. This was the answer to the confusion of Babel. God promised his covenant to Abraham. And here, in the midst of that same kind of imagery, God makes the same covenant to Abraham's grandson Jacob. 
Let me just talk about the several different parts of this promise uh, that God spoke. First of all, God promises his presence to Jacob, his presence. I am the Lord. I am with you. I will not leave you, he says. Now, this is exactly what Jacob needed to hear. Think about Jacob. Jacob is desperately alone. He's desperately alone. He has just been virtually kicked out of his family. But this has always been God's promise to his covenant people. It was God's promise to Abraham when he told him to pick up and leave his family and go to the place that he was in him. He says, I'll be with you. I promise you my presence. This was the, pre- this was the promise of God to Israel when, when Moses wrote this account of Genesis. The people were about to enter the promised land and God there said to him, uh, my spirit will go with you. I will give you rest. You're not alone. I'm present with you. This was the promise that was reiterated by David in the, in the, in the great shepherd psalm. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not be afraid for you are with me. This is central in the promise of the covenant. God has come near to us and he promises his presence. He promises to stay. Secondly, God promised Jacob the land, which was once promised to Abraham and Isaac. Verse verse 13, I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Now Jacob needs to hear this. For Jacob's family was very wealthy. Grandfather Abraham left him a lot of wealth. His father Isaac had a lot of wealth. And yet, for whatever reason, Jacob seems to have left home with nothing. And here he is on his way out of this land with, it appears, the shirt on his back. When he arrives at Uncle Laban's house and, and, and begins to look for a wife, he has nothing to offer. He has only his labor, <laughs> and he works 14 years. But here, God, here again, God is promising Jacob to Jacob just what he promised to Abraham Though Jacob seemed to have nothing, though Jacob seemed to be on his way away from the inheritance, God reminds him, no, you are the heir, Jacob, of everything you can see. Not because you deserve it, not because you're so cool, not because I'm so pleased with you, but because I've made my covenant in grace to your grandfather Abraham and to your father Isaac, and I now confirm it to you, I will give you this land. Such is the encouragement when God comes near us to remind us of his promises. Moses wrote these words for the encouragement of God's people who were about to enter that very land to finally, 400 years later, to finally take possession of it. God promised that land. Third, God promised to make Jacob a blessing. Look at verse 14. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth. And you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. This is just the opposite of what Jacob's situation looked like. Jacob was anything but a blessing to his family. He had just brought disgrace to his family. He was a little swindler. He was a little conniving, conniver. He was not a blessing at all. Undoubtedly, everyone in his father's household, all the servants, all, all, all the, uh, all the uh, shepherds, all the surrounding people, I'm sure they all knew about the little swindler who had just beaten his father out of the blessing, stole it from his brother. Indeed, he was sleeping on this rock because he had to flee for his life. 
And as far as, far as the promise of many descendants, <laughs> Jacob wasn't even married. Wasn't even married. What, what, what is this? I will make you a blessing. I will make you so many descendants that you'll spread out to the ends of the earth and the whole world will be blessed through you. And it, it didn't seem that way, did it? But when God comes near us, folks, he takes the foolish things and he takes the weak things and he takes the things that are nothing and he makes of them that which he uses to bless the whole earth. That's always true of God's covenant with his people. Finally, God promised to preserve Jacob and bring him back home. Well, Jacob was afraid. He was alone. The future was completely uncertain. If the past was any indicator, the, the, the future did not look good for him. But listen to God's gracious promise in verse 15. I am with you. I will watch over you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Oh, make no mistake, when God comes near, his people are secure. For God will complete the work he begins in us. No matter how impossible it seems, Jacob is exhibit A. You see, what God said to Jacob, all these promises matched what God showed to Jacob. God is not far off and uninvolved. Though Jacob is helpless, God didn't need his scheming anyway. God is keeping his promises, and he is very present, and he is very involved, and he will do exactly what he said. Jacob's problem is simply that he can't see that. He can't see God. But for a moment, God pulls back the curtains and lets him see. God actively involved, heaven touching earth, and God's messengers doing God's work. God has come near. And he says, I will be your God, and you will be my people. But dear folks, this is not just God's message to Jacob this night back so long ago. Here God foretold what he intends to do for us, for the whole world. We know that's the case because Jesus himself indicates that this incident, this vision that Jacob saw, was really all about Jesus. In this vision given to Jacob, God was foretelling his plan to come near to the world in the person of his son. Jesus explicitly makes this claim in John chapter 1. If you want to turn with me, or I'll read it to you if you don't want to. John chapter 1, the last section from about picking up at the verse 45. Verse 45, this is early in Jesus' ministry. Philip... Verse 45, John 1, 45. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come out of there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said to him, Here's a true Israelite in whom there's nothing false. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus said, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. 
You shall see greater things than that. He then added, and listen to this, I tell you the truth, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now there's certainly some question as to what's Jesus referring to? What event is he saying that's going to happen when Nathaniel will see this? But there's no question about the central truth that Jesus sets out here, that Jesus says he is himself the stairway. He's the stairway upon which the angels ascend and descend. He's the stairway through whom God is doing his work. He is the bridge between heaven and earth. He is the mediator through whom God deals with the world. John Calvin is right when he says, it is Christ alone who connects heaven and earth. He is the only mediator who reaches from heaven down to earth. He is the medium through which this, the fullness of all celestial blessings flow down to us and through which we, in turn, ascend to God. The latter is a figure of Christ, the mediator through whom ministering angels and righteousness and life descend to us step by step. Oh, you see, it is through Jesus that God has come near to us. That's exactly what the scripture says. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory. And in another place, there's one mediator between God and man. The man, Christ Jesus, who gave his life a ransom for many. Oh, but it's not just Jacob's vision that points us to Christ. It's all the promises God made there also point us to Christ. For it is through Jesus that we know God's abiding presence. It's Jesus who promises, lo, I am with you, all the way even to the end of the age. And it's Jesus who, when he ascended into heaven, sent his comforter to be present, sent the Holy Spirit to be present with us forever. And it's through Jesus that the promise of the land will ultimately be fulfilled. Oh, the geographical boundaries promised were stretched out in David's day, in Solomon's day. But the promise is bigger than that little piece of of real estate in the Middle East. Indeed, Hebrews 11 tells us that Abraham was looking for nothing less than the very city of God, which God himself would make. And how will we inherit that? Well, Jesus comes telling us that we inherit nothing less than the new heaven and the new earth in him. All things are his. The earth is his. And in him it will be ours. And the promise of the blessing of the whole world? Well, that too is to be found in Jesus. In fact, the Apostle Paul uh, points out that God made that promise to Abraham 2,000 years before Jesus came. God was preaching the gospel in advance. Because how was the blessing going to come on the whole world? Through Abraham's seed, his son, who we know to be Jesus Christ. And through him, the gospel, the good news of salvation, will go to the ends of the earth to every people and every tribe and every nation and every language and every culture until the whole earth is blessed. That's what's promised to Jacob. But it's fulfilled in Jesus. In Jesus, God has come near to bless us with salvation. And the promise to Jacob in his fear that God would bring him home unscathed, that too is fulfilled in Jesus. It's not just a promise to bring us back to our homeland like he did to Jacob 14 years later. No, Jesus goes way beyond that. You know the promise. 
Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And Tom says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. You see, all the promises made to, J to Jacob find their fulfillment in Jesus. He is the one who has come into the world to save us. Through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, he is the one in whom God comes near. He is the only way in which we can know God coming near. And so this morning I bring you words of encouragement. God's promises are just to, as true today as they were to Jacob. It doesn't matter how terribly messed up you might be. It doesn't matter how much disgrace you might have known. It doesn't matter how broken and downtrodden you feel, how afraid you might be. God is greater than all that. God has come near to sinners in the person of his Son. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting our sins against us, but reconciling us to him through the Lord Jesus Christ. That was the promise made to Jacob, though he could only see it darkly. That's the promise that we inherit, and we see it crystal clear as it's unfolded in God's Word. No matter what our situation might be, God can reach us. He can reach Jacob. He can reach you. Which brings us to our second point. Such grace demands a response. God's grace demands a response. You know, dreams don't last forever. Whether they're good or bad, you wake up and then it's all, all over and you shake it off and go on with reality, right? Oh, but this was not just a dream. This was an encounter with the living God. How do you shake that off? Well, you don't. It demands a response. And that's just what we see coming from Jacob. A response to the majesty and grace of God which was revealed to him there in that place. And in his response, we see a pattern of for our own response to the grace of God, which has appeared to us in even greater measure in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me just mention a few things of Jacob's response. First of all, notice that he was afraid. He was afraid. Now, before he had been afraid that Esau was going to kill him, this is a different kind of fear. This was a holy fear. He had seen something of the glory of God, and he was awestruck. He realized he had been in the presence of God, and he trembled before such majesty. In verse 16 and 17, surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. Might I suggest God is no less majestic today? Because of Christ Jesus, we no longer have to cower in fear. We no longer come to him as an angry judge. We come to him as our dear father. But at the same time, he's no less awesome. Indeed, his grace is more awesome than all of his other traits. How could we comprehend such majestic grace? 
So what's this casual, we're just buddies attitude toward God that we seem to have? Where's the sense of awe? Where's the sense of his majesty and greatness before which we're so small? Even God's grace demands a humble, awestruck response. As the songwriter put it, in wonder lost with trembling joy, we take the pardon of our God. Pardon for crimes of deepest dye. A pardon bought with Jesus' blood. Jacob was afraid with a holy fear. Then notice that Jacob worshipped. According to verse 18, Jacob took that very rock that he had slept on, that rock he had used as a pillow, and he stood it up on end, apparently, an unnatural position so that no one would miss it as they came by, for it was, it was not like it would normally be. Something had happened here. And then he took oil and he poured it on that rock, setting it apart, consecrating it as a memorial to God. And he named the place Beth-El. Beth means house. El is short for Elohim, house of God. Now, Jacob is not building an idol here. He's not making a graven image. He's not setting up a shrine. No, Jacob is establishing a witness to the promises which God made to him in this place. Let everyone know what happened here. Let Jacob never forget what God said to him here, how God came near to him here, how God promised him things here, how God made a covenant with him here. This is a witness. And you see, folks, that's still a, a, a strong element in our worship. We don't come here in order that we might twist God's arm and get answers to our prayers or that we can check off an attendance roster and get some merit for having been here. No, the, all the merit is found in Jesus. He's already done everything we need. We come here to worship because we need to be reminded of what he's done. We need to come back and, and, and play it again in our minds and sing it again and hear it again. We come because as a body, we are witnesses in this world of God's mighty acts. We come because he's worthy of our repeated, continuing gratitude. And so we're commanded not to forsake gathering, but to come and to worship and to worship and to set up this memorial to worship and to tell again the great acts of our God, just like Jacob did. Well, God's grace to us in Jesus demands a response. A response not just of holy fear, but a response of worship in spirit and in truth. And then finally, Jacob responded by committing himself to the Lord. Now, some have been critical of Jacob, saying he played let's make a deal with God. We see it there in verse 20 and following. Okay, God, if you'll do this, I'll do this. Well... Undoubtedly, D Jacob's response is only baby steps here. He was just beginning to understand God's promises, and just like you and me, he emphasized the promises that he thought applied to him the, the most, like food and clothing and practical things like that. But the truth is, this is a beginning of commitment on Jacob's part. All those ifs of verse 20 and 21 can just as well mean since. Since God has promised to be with me, then I will do such and such. Since God has promised, I will. In other words, God's grace 
demands a response. Jacob's commitments simply mirror God's promises. He says, God says, I will be with you. And Jacob says, since God will be with me, I will do this. God says, I will watch over you. And Jacob says, since God will watch over me, I will do this. God says, I will bring you back. And Jacob says, well, since God will bring bring me back, then I will serve him. God's grace demands a response of commitment. And Jacob's commitment went all the way to the commitment of his wealth. Believing that God would provide for him, he commits himself to tithe back to the Lord. To give a tenth of everything that he has back to the Lord. Now there was no law requiring Jacob to do that. Jacob did this out of gratitude, the same way we're called to give out of gratitude to God. In a tangible way, a committed way to respond, not just in words, but in actions. Well, my dear folks, Jacob, what Jacob understood is nothing compared to what we understand. We live with the record and with our own experience of the grace of God that's come in Jesus, the great salvation that God has unfolded, which Jacob could at best only see little glimpses of through a dark glass. Oh, but if we know so much more, God's grace still demands response. So does our response match what we know? Does our holy fear Reflect the majesty of the salvation which we understand, which we've been given? Does our worship demonstrate the presence of God that we've come to know? Does our giving suggest the level of self-commitment that Jacob had? There's a strange notion floating around these days that one can be a Christian without it changing anything. One can be a Christian and it has no consequences in his life. No holy fear. No desire to worship. No commitment of self. Ian Duguid, who I quote very often, a Hebrew scholar down at Westminster Seminary, talks about the absurdity of such an attitude. Listen to what he writes. He says, a Christian without a deep desire to worship is a contradiction in terms. It's like a sports fan who never wishes to attend a single game of his favorite team. Or a music buff who never wants to go to a concert. But if Jacob was moved by his experience of God, how much more should we be moved as Christians? For we have come to God through the gate of heaven to which Bethel only pointed forward, which is Jesus himself. And as was true for Jacob, so it's true for us. God's grace demands a response. A response of holy fear, of faith and trust. A response of awe-filled worship. A response of self-commitment. It's true then. It's true now. We're climbing Jacob's ladder. Mm. Not really. That misses the point. The truth is, Jesus is the ladder. Not a way for us to climb up to God, but the way in which God has come near to us. When Jacob saw this awesome vision, it changed his life. 
And knowing Jesus must change our lives too. For this display of God's grace demands a response from us. As Isaac Watts put it in his famous hymn, Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Amen. Well, Father, I pray that we would understand through this vision and these promises that you made to Jacob so many centuries ago. May we understand the greater reality that which was only pictured there. And you're dealing with him, that reality being your plan to draw near to us and to draw us to yourself through the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, when we know so much more, may our response not be so much less. May we understand your grace and in holy fear, worship, and commit ourselves to you, mind and soul, body and spirit. Oh Lord, give us grace to not give you less, but to, uh, to love you so much more. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.